headlines. You know, you, 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 CNN is my opening page, but you op- open it up enough, and after a while, you just uh, wonder how much more pain can there be if you just think about this week alone. This week, the CDC has said that Ebola could kill 550,000 people by January. This week, there's another school shooting. Washington State, when it was done, two kids, whole life ahead of them, were killed. Four others in critical condition. Um, Boko Haram, who had kidnapped 200 girls in Nigeria, was supposed to let them go, uh, ended up kidnapping more. Uh, ISIS headline said their streets of their capital are lined with heads of people. University of Virginia student went missing several weeks ago. They found her remains this week, 18 years old. Um, seems uh, strangled, uh, violated. Uh, you know, it goes on and on and on, and you say, my goodness, oh, oh, God. You know, 50 million people will die a year. That's 6,000 an hour. That's a little over 100 a minute, which means um, the time we're here. 7,500 people will die. I mean, this is not just statistics. These are very important people. These are moms and dads and sisters and brothers and kids and grandparents and best friends. And many of them will die in incredible pain. They'll die at the hand of injustice, whether it's wickedness of man or an accident or a disease or, or, or a virus. And you, you look at this and you go... This is what the world will say. How can God allow this to keep going on? Either A, he doesn't care, which makes him a monster, or B, he can't do it. He's just up there crying and wringing his hands. Well, fine, get out of the way. We'll try to do it ourselves then. But obviously, with the suffering, that proves there cannot be a God. Barna has told us, number one response for why people either choose to not believe in God or walk away from him is the existence of suffering, evil in this world. Uh, 1940s, there was a prominent, two prominent evangelists kind of took the stage, as it were. Uh, You've heard of Billy Graham. You know, Billy Graham was one of them. But also a guy by the name of Charles Templeton. They both, both these guys... Uh, Templeton and Graham had their own evangelistic crusade ministries. Both of them packed out arenas and preached to 30,000 plus. Uh, Actually, people would say that Templeton had the edge on Graham as far as eloquence and charisma. Uh, Billy Graham and Charles Templeton became good friends, uh, very good friends, actually. Uh, But Charles Templeton's faith started going sideways on him. He got tangled with this whole evolutionary thing and started thinking, well, the Bible, I wonder if it's not true. Uh, He ended up saying that the thing that pushed him over, ultimately, was this idea of of suffering. So he and Graham separated. Uh, He wrote in his book, Farewell to God. This was published just a couple years before he died. And he said this after talking about all these evils in the world. He says, a loving God could not possibly be the author of the horrors we have been describing. Horrors that continue every day, have continued since time again, and will continue as long as life exists. It is an inconceivable tale of suffering and death. And because the tale is fact, is in truth the history of the world, it is obvious that there cannot be a loving God. Uh, Templeton was looking at, at, when a younger man, the cover of Life magazine, and on it was a picture of an African woman holding her deceased baby. And he said this. He said, I thought, 
Is it possible to believe that there is a loving or caring creator when all this woman needed was rain? How long could a loving God do this to that woman? Who runs the rain? I don't. You don't. He does. Or at least that's what I thought. But when I saw that photograph, I immediately knew that it is not possible for this to happen and for there to be a loving God. There was no way. Who else but a fiend could destroy a baby and virtually kill its mother with agony when all that was needed was rain? And I began considering the plagues that sweep across parts of the planet and indiscriminately kill. And it just became crystal clear to me that it's not possible for an intelligent person to believe there is a deity who loves. I mean, this is a huge issue for Christianity. This is not just a simple answer you can throw on, on this one. Matter of fact, C.S. Lewis, when he's talking about his atheist days, he says that not many years ago, when I was an atheist, if anyone had asked me, why do you not believe in God? My reply would have been this. Look at the universe in which we live. By far the greatest part of it is empty space, cold and dark. On earth, life is so arranged that all forms of life can only survive by preying on one another. In higher forms of life, there appears a quality called consciousness, which enables creatures to suffer pain. The creatures cause pain by being born, live by inflicting pain, and in pain they mostly die. Human beings also have reason, which enables them to foresee their pain, causing them immense mental suffering. Reason also enables humans to inflict more pain on each other and on the irrational creatures. This power they have exploited to the full. Their history is largely a record of crime, war, disease, and terror. Furthermore, the universe will one day cease to be. Every race that comes into being in part, in any part of the universe is doomed. All stories will come to nothing. All life will turn out in the end to have been a transitional and senseless contortion upon the idiotic face of infinite matter. If you ask me to believe that this is the work of a benevolent spirit, I reply that all of the evidence points in the opposite direction. Uh, Lewis's perspective is not different from much of, of the world today. Now, you need to know that this, uh, while suffering has always been, obviously, as an apologetic against the existence of God, that's really a modern issue. The, the ancients didn't have this concept. Ortberg lets us know that in the ancient world, one in five children died before they were two. Before children became 10, 50% of them would have died. Which means parents would just expect that they're going to have to bury some of their children. They were real parents with real pain and real hurt and real anguish. But they never, at least generally speaking, considered that this meant there wasn't a God. Now, it's also interesting to me that most of the folk who have a real struggle with the suffering pain are usually people on the outside looking in. Now, it's just a general statement, but people on the inside who are dealing with it, often it's a different, a different perspective is there. Now, what do we do when the world brings this to us, plays the trump card, says there's no God, suffering, pain, evil, explain it. If God is so good, how come he doesn't? How come the rain? How come the drought? How come the disease? How come the accidents? How come? What do we say? Many Christians at that point will kind of tuck their tail between their legs and kind of walk away feeling defeated, maybe wondering themselves, maybe my faith isn't as solid as I thought. Plastic answers are just not going to work at that point. We need to know the Bible does not shy away from this. 
I mean, the whole books of the Bible, Job, first book of the Bible, a book of Habakkuk, Psalms 22, Psalm 73, Jesus in Luke 13. Remember, Jesus is the one who put it on the table about talking to his disciples as an illustration. Consider the Tower of Siloam. It fell. You know, just a building project fell, killed 18 people. Are these guys, is it just judgment? I mean, Jesus puts this on the table. This is, is, is an issue. How do we respond? Real important. Our job is to make disciples, but how do we respond with that? Uh, just on the front end, let me just say this. Uh, mourn with those who mourn is never bad advice. little humility. You've seen Christians. I've seen Christians, too. They've got the answer. They're just kind of whomping people with the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, the person may have incredible pain. This may not be an intellectual issue for them. It may be a very personal issue for a Christian to just start dropping Answers that are going to sound like very simplistic answers on this person. That's not humility, uh, trust in, in him, prayer. Mourn with those who mourn. It's never bad advice. After that's said and done, it's helpful to say something like this. There's some huge questions here. No, no I, I'm, I'm with you. And I don't have all the answers. But there are some things that the Bible says about it. This is what I know. What are those things? Well, we're just going to look at, at a couple of, of them this, this morning. Um, but first thing is that our understanding is limited. When people say, you know, they look at the suffering in the world, and it just because it's, you know, indiscriminate, it's random, it's just kind of vicious, and people look at it and say, it's senseless, it's meaningless. That is an arrogant statement. You don't want to tell people that when they're, they're hurting. But, but what that's saying is this. That's saying, because I can't see any purpose in it, there is none. My ability, my judgment is the standard of the world. Remember, this was Job's thing. He couldn't see any wisdom, any understanding. He had no clue why he was going through what he was going through. And so he was coming out, and God had to come at him and say, Whoa, buddy! This is not, not the way. Remember, God, God said it's like the, the, the little boy who crossed the fence and was looking at the rocket ready to go off. Remember this? He said, he said, there's no wings on this thing, and it's pointed straight up, and it's too heavy. It's never going to get off the ground. And the physicist doesn't try to argue thrust. and everything. He just says, son, get on the other side of the fence, because you can't understand. It's just too big of an issue here. It's just, it's just too big. Now, Peter Kreeft, uh, he's a... Philosopher, uh, chair, I don't know if he's the chair, a professor at, he was the chair for a long time at Villanova. He's uh, at Boston College. But he says this. He says, think of it like a bear in a trap and a hunter comes along. And for whatever reason, the hunter has got compassion in his heart and wants to free the bear. Well, how's he going to do this? He tries to get close to the bear and the you know, bear's not going to let him get close. So maybe he takes out his tranquilizer gun. And he's shooting the bear. Well, the bear's not going to think, well, this is nice and kind. The bear's going to think, this guy's trying to hurt me. And then maybe the, the bear is semi-conscious and the hunter comes and he gets his paw, but he realizes he's got to push the paw further in the trap to get the trap open. So he's pushing this bear's paw further in the trap. What's the bear thinking? He's trying to push me into more pain and more pain. This is what's going through the bear's mind. It's not radically different than the hunter. Now, what he says is the gap between a bear and a hunter is this big. But the gap between mankind and God. And sometimes things happen. And we don't know. It doesn't make any sense to us. 
It's not to say, you know, again, you don't want to tell anyone who's hurting that, that, that there's a reason behind all, all of this. But, but when people are trying to argue on the, the intellectual level, need to, a little humility goes a long way. We realize that, that surgeons recognize that sometimes I have to inflict pain in order for health to be there. Parents recognize that sometimes there has to be pain for character to be there. The coach recognizes that a little pain on the practice field is what's needed before this athlete is going to be who he can be. The music teacher recognizes that a little pain in the practice room is required for this person to actually become they're there for this potential. The, the personal trainer re- realizes that a little pain on the elliptical machine is needed if this person's going to hit optimal health. Again, we're not saying what the reasons are. I don't, I don't know. But just a little humility goes a long way with this. Alvin Plantiga, he's professor of philosophy at, at Vanderbilt. He said, if you were to look into your pup tent looking for a St. Bernard and you didn't see one, you could draw a logical conclusion that there's probably not one in there. But if you look in your pup tent for a noceum, itty bitty invisible little bugs, but they have a whopping bite, uh, and you didn't see any in there, it doesn't mean that they're not in there. Oh, noceum is you don't you don't see them, virtually invisible things. And he says sometimes when we look for purpose in suffering, it's kind of like the Saint Bernard thing is what we're looking for. But maybe it's the noceum thing. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean that it's not there, that it's not part of it. Hebrews 5, 7, and 9. The interesting verse. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Have you ever had to do that? Uh, prayers with tears, crying out. Jesus was there. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. It's interesting. It says he was heard, but he still went through an incredible crucifixion. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, not moral perfection. He was always perfect that way. It was complete. Uh, obedience was no longer theoretical for God. He had to obey when the cost was, was high. If Jesus had to learn obedience through what he suffered, perhaps we might have to do that. You know, this picture is sometimes that of a uh, uh, needlepoint thing. You know, you look on the upside and there's all these strings hanging and it takes, makes no sense and it's just kind of conglomerate. But you get on the other side and it's, oh, I see the picture. Is it possible, is it possible that we're on earth looking up and it makes no sense? It just makes no human sense. I mean, the greatest picture of this is the crucifixion, right? Friday, Saturday, how many of these disciple guys would have been thinking, oh, this is wonderful. They would have been thinking, this is a travesty to justice. This is awful. This has derailed God's plans. This is the worst thing that could possibly be. Now, come Sunday, they're realizing, no, this was the best thing that could possibly be doesn't erase the culpability of Herod and the, the, everybody else. But God used it in an incredible way. Might it, be, might it be possible, just possible, that the things that we look at and go, there's no possible reason. Maybe there could be. Maybe in the plan of God, it's, it, is, it is an option. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting, if you, you know some of them, the most 
mature saints. Some of the folk who don't just know a lot about God, they really know him. You, you, you've met these folk, you've got close to them, you thought you were in the presence of God yourself. I would venture to say that none of those folk are there who haven't walked through the fire. Part of the thing that makes them that is they've walked through such depths of pain where their rationality wasn't going to carry them, but God carried them. The things they saw and the things they understood. Job, Job at the end, 42, his, his, his whole understanding of God was shifted and changed. You need to know what he believed about God before. It wasn't all wrong. It was just more shallow. But through that experience, God took him to a depth that he could have never come to otherwise. Our understand, so it's just that starting off with the understanding on the front end, our understanding is, is, is limited. A little humility goes a long way with this. Number two, uh, the existence of pain is actually, can actually be an argument for the existence of God. Have you, have you, have you thought about this? C.S. Lewis brought this out. He says this. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, he says, atheism turns out to be too simple. There, whether you're following God or not, there are certain things that every people know are wrong. They don't have to go through a big ethical class to know that Hitler was wrong, that Stalin was wrong, that Ebola is wrong, that ISIS is wrong. We can go through accidents and murder and, and theft and robbery. Wrong, 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 wrong. We all know this. We just know this. And we know that there are certain things that we just know are right. You know, kindness is right. Honesty is, is right. Society is not going to make... Uh, uh, respect for other people is right. In a movie, we cheer courage and we cheer selflessness on part of the hero. We just know. We just know. And we have to go. And what Lewis is saying is, how do we just know? Evolutionary processes, natural selection, is all built on death. It's built on the stronger preying on the weaker. That's what it's about. It, 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 it is built on that. Life, this, this system is built on that. Why would you ever think that there's such a thing as right and wrong? Now, the Christians believe that there's such a thing as right and wrong, but this is why. Because God said it. Now, if, if, you, if you don't hold to, to that God said it, what are you basing it on? Where did you come up with that? Was it... Um, John Paul Sartre, he said, if God does not exist, there is no longer any possibility of an a priori good existing. It is nowhere written that one must be honest or must not lie. Dostoevsky says, if God does not exist, everything is permitted. If God does not exist, we do not have any means of justification of any behavior whatsoever. This was 1945-46, the Nuremberg War Trials. Following World War II, uh, the Allied forces put together these military tribunals to try the uh, upper Nazi war criminals. And they said, you know, you are guilty of crimes against humanity. And the, 
the, the Nazi criminal said, well, who said? Where is it written that says we can't do this, what we've done? Oh, it's not written anywhere, is it? No, we're, we're not on trial for crimes against humanity as you invent them. We think that it was better to eradicate this. This race is going to destroy the world. And so we think that the world is better with them gone. The only reason we're on trial is because we lost the war. If we would have won the war, you would be on trial. And you know what? Without an understanding of God, without an acceptance of God, they nailed it. That's absolutely right. Who says what's right or wrong if there's no God? And so just this idea of a just unjust system. Where's that come from? Romans 1 says that God wrote his law on the hearts of his creatures. Ecclesiastes says that he put eternity in the hearts of man. We know. I mean, you go through life, stuff happens. You just know this is not the way it's supposed to be. Well, where'd you come up with that? That's a sign. It comes from somewhere. And it's not from this world in any way, shape, or form. That there's a God. Observation number three. Humility goes a long way. We've got to start with this understanding that my understanding is limited. Number two, suffering, when I see it, it should remind me that there is a justice, that there is a God, that there is a plan, though I might not understand it, that God came up with. Observation three is we have a God who has entered into suffering with us. This, you know, Christianity, the only religion in the world whose God came down and entered into suffering. When we think about Jesus' suffering, we think of the cross, and well, we should, but back up. I mean, he was born in in deep poverty with all of the physical and emotional and social stuff that came with that. Then Jesus, as a baby, was a fugitive baby. He was taken to Egypt Lived, it grew up, little boy, as a minority in a foreign land with everything that comes with that. Then when they moved back, they came to Nazareth, back to the hometown where the, the folk had just about run Mary out of town with all their, their tongue wagging and gossiping. This woman having a baby outside of wedlock and all their tongues were waiting for Jesus because when he got in, it would be said that, that he was the son of a, of a perverse woman. He had to live with that. Then Jesus had to go through the pain of his dad dying. The, one of the few people in this world who understood what Jesus was about. And then as the oldest boy, he had to take the, all the responsibility for the family. And then he had a good friend of his die, Lazarus. And then he had a close cousin of his, John the Baptist, who was unjustly incarcerated and was murdered in prison. And then Jesus, I mean, he had was was was... Hungry and thirsty, he had, at this time of greatest need, his friends ran from him. One of his best friends betrayed him. And then, of course, he was, he was beaten and he was whipped and he was spit upon. He was humiliated as he was crucified. And then finally, after he died, they buried him in a borrowed grave because he didn't have any money. I mean, talk about suffering. I, I don't think that his suffering is in any way less than any of us. And the worst part of it is the uh, uh, spiritual Because, you know, Jesus didn't need food. He said, I've got food you don't know about. It's to do the will of the Father. And he didn't need a house or possessions. He said, the the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He wasn't complaining. It's just the way it was. He didn't care. Jesus didn't need rankings. He didn't need the applause of man. He he had only one thing he needed, relationship with God the Father. Think about this relationship. 
I mean, your best relationship goes back how many years? Jesus with the Father, eternity. Perfect relationship. Perfect love, perfect loyalty, perfect commitment to each other. Perfect relationship. And as long as Jesus said that, I don't need food, I'm just doing my Father's will. But when he's on the cross, the Father turns his back on Jesus. Jesus did not feel like he was loved by the Father, did not feel pitied by the Father. Jesus was not just condemned by the Romans or condemned by the Sanhedrin. He was condemned by God, his Father. And so he screamed out, my God, my God, why? You ever see this with Job? How about you? You go through stuff, God, why? He associated with all of us. But you need to know he didn't ask that question for his benefit. He knew why. He asked that question for our benefit. So we would go back and say, yeah, why? Job chapter 40, verse 8. It's a great, great text in the book of Job. God just starts talking to Job. And he says, will you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Focus on that last line for a minute. Just look at that last line for a minute. Some translations would, would, would put it this way. Must I be condemned that you might be justified? In this context, the answer, of course, is no. God's saying, you don't put me down to elevate yourself. But 2,000 years later from this, the same God that talked to Satan, the same God that talked to Job and asked him this question, would come to earth, would be condemned, would be hanging on the cross. And of course, the answer to why is Job. Because Job cannot be justified unless God is condemned. Must God be condemned that Job would be justified? Yes. Must God be condemned that Mark would be justified? Yes. And you, yes. If you're going to be justified, it's not because you're good. Let me ask you are, are you, are you justified? Because it's not because, well, you go to church or you read your Bible or you're kind to people or you give an X amount of money away. Nothing to do with that. The only way you're going to be justified is justified is through God being condemned. He was condemned in your stead. Jesus was on the cross. He became the sin. If you think about this, they took all the sin of the whole world, all the evil, all the suffering, and they put a cloak of that on Jesus. How did that feel? He became condemned. God could not look at him because he was carrying the sin of Job and of Mark. Not just sins I've done, but you know what sins that I do today. Every time I commit a sin, it's more weight on Jesus. Because God took our future sins as well and put on. So let me ask you, are you justified? It's only through his condemnation. He says this. The crucifixion of Jesus, the ultimate evil, God being condemned for my justification for yours, was the most glorious part of the world. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? Humankind at its worst, at its vilest, the greatest suffering and evil and pain, and the greatest of God, exact same time. The fourth fourth observation we think of as you think about this, and that's 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 this: we had a God that suffered, entered into suffering with us. Important that we go there. Uh, the humility 
I don't understand everything. That's, that's real important. The thought that perhaps when we see pain and suffering and evil, it's a proof to me that God exists. But then also we need to realize that this world is not the world that God originally intended. It's just not. You, you, know, you know this. In Genesis uh, 1 and 2, God creates and he looks at Adam and he says, there's one tree. You've only got one rule here, not a bunch of rules, just one, the tree. Don't mess with it. Because the moment you do, I mean, God's not hiding stuff and being too subtle. The moment you do, you will die. You will. Everything goes south. When you everything falls apart, you hit the, the first domino and it's all going negative, bad. Stay away from it. And mankind chose to not trust God. And before we pick on Adam for a minute, I know some of us are saying, you know, I get to heaven, man. I'm going to find Adam. He's done. He's out of here. Mm. How many times have you known this is probably not a good thing? You've done it anyway. Have you ever done that? So, you're Adam as well. We're, 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 all, we're all there. When that transfer, you might say, well, listen, uh, what God was creating there, here's the deal. He was creating free will. You say, well, couldn't he have created a universe outside of pain and suffering? Well, could he create a rock so big he can't pick up? Can he create a, a round square? It's illogical. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You want free will? You can't just choose between the best and the best. What kind of choice is that? We're all robots at that point. There's no, there's no, there's no hate, there's no evil, but there's no love either. There's no free will. You, just the potential of being, I mean, being able to choose recreates a potential for evil. It has to be there. God didn't create evil, but he created the potential for it. When you and I have sinned, we brought this uh, world to be what it is. It's not what God originally intended. At that point, you know the story. Adam suddenly had a broken relationship with God. He's hiding from God. Adam and Eve start fighting with each other. They're, they're accusing each other. The, the scripture says the curse came upon them life under the curse. God says this multiple times. The curse was on them relationally. Uh, Scripture says that that, uh, the curse was on them uh, internally because from this point on you see depression creeping in. Man being confused. The curse is on between man and land and viruses and thistles and weeds and tornadoes and, and the curse. Now it's interesting. The Bible starts with the garden perfect world. It's going to end with the garden perfect world But in between time, it's just life under the curse. And it's the only life you and I know. It's how we've lived this. But you need to know, we need to know, that one day, there will be. There's a revelation, 22. It says this, it says, On each side of the river stood, he's talking about heaven, stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Remember this tree way back when was the one that brought everything Trouble. Now there's going to be a tree healing of the nations. Everything broken will be fixed. Not just forgotten. It will be fixed. Every, everything that needs to be redeemed will be redeemed. Everything that needs to be realigned will be realigned. He says, no longer will there be any curse. This whole life, you and I have only known life under the curse. He says, ah, finally it's going to be gone. There's no curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. Perfect relationship with God and his servants will serve him. Now, this is how this works out for us. Uh, Physically, every one of us has a cup, bitter cup. You've got one. Everyone's cup is not equally bitter. It's not intensely bitter all the time. Praise God for that. We couldn't handle it. 
but everybody in here will bury the person you love the most, or you will go first and crush them. So that, those are the options. That's, that's what we have in this life. But I have a different story. Revelation 21, look at this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things, the curse, has passed away. So at the gates, we drop off. Is it what We drop off the black dresses and the wheelchairs and the walkers and the medication. It's all done because none of that in heaven. Physically, life without the curse in heaven. I don't know what this would be like. None of us know what this would feel like. We've never experienced such a thing. This is emotionally, this works for us as well. Uh, there's a stigma, no doubt, of uh, emotional struggles. But in the Bible, we see godly as well as ungodly struggling emotionally. Depression's called the common cold of the emotions, which nobody is immune. You go through times of being in a funk, being down. Eh. Sometimes these are very deep, and sometimes they last a long time. But at the gates of heaven, we drop off our counselor books, our Prozac, our self-help books, our feelings of confusion and despair. They're done because in heaven... No more curse. Emotionally, no curse. We can't imagine how that might feel. Relationally, this plays out. Uh, Teresa and I have a great relationship, I think. Um, Once in a while, not too often, once in a while, though, you know, something stupid will be said, and and suddenly, well, maybe, I'm sure you've never experienced this kind of thing, but, but you start going, what happened? Think of your absolute best relationship in this world. It's still a relationship under the curse. There's going to be misunderstandings. In heaven, there's, there's no more misunderstandings. There's no being misunderstood. There's no manipulating. There's no being manipulated. There's no uh, jealousy. There's, there's no blowing up. There's no needing to ask for forgiveness. Because you've got relationship Outside the curse. In the Bible, it says that heaven is a city. This city means, often in the Bible, community. Lots of people. Relationship. Hell, juxtaposed, is a place where you are by yourself. You are alone. Darkness is there. So in heaven, perfect relationship. This is God's desire. And this works for us spiritually as well. You, never again in heaven will you have to pray fighting mental drift. You ever pray? <laughs> finding, you're starting to pray and you're trying hard and suddenly your mind is going, oh yeah, that's a nice show, aren't they? Your mind just starts going in different places and you're pulling it back. Whoa. Never again will you have to pray uh, for strength. Never again will you have to feel the guilt of blowing it, of dropping the ball, of failing God. Never again will you have the, the anguish of, of, of letting your flesh take control. It says that in heaven we get white robes. I don't know if we get literal white robes or not, maybe. But what it means is clean, pure, no guilt, no guilt. We can't imagine living like that. That's the world that God has for us. Dostoevsky would say when he thinks about that, he says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humility, humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, 
that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. I wonder, as we, we wrap this up, we wrap up this series, if there might be somebody who has walked away from Christ because of this whole thing. Something has happened, something's gone wrong, and you just have distanced yourself. Maybe you still go to church, maybe put on the face, maybe everyone thinks, but you know in your heart it's definitely not where you used to be. Let me, let me read this for you. Lee Strobel in his book, A Case for Faith, 50 years after Templeton and Billy Graham separated, he was able to interview Charles Templeton. Templeton, uh, just diagnosed with Alzheimer's, still uh, uh, conversant, uh, mentally sharp. And then Strobel interviews him. And he says this. Let me just quote out of the book. He says, uh, after being stonewalled a little bit by Templeton, he says, last question, he says, and how do you assess this Jesus it seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who's ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I have ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes, he's the most important thing in my life, came the reply. I, I, he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Uh, but no, he said slowly. He's the most. He stopped then again. In my view, he declared, he's the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. 
He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. Finally, quietly but adamantly, he insisted, Enough of that. If you've walked with him, maybe great evangelist person, and you've walked away, you've got to know, at the end, this side of heaven or the other, you will meet him. You will again be, be forced to confront Jesus. What Job would say, what the gospel would tell us, is that the answer is not in, in words, it's in the word. It, it's not in, in, in explanations it's in Christ himself. It's the person of, of Jesus. And so to be at a place where you say, I don't understand, I don't know, that's okay. But I know this. My, my Jesus died for me. And he loves me. And though I don't understand everything, I know that. Sometimes that's an incredibly godly approach. Would you, would you bow with me in prayer? Let me just ask you again. whether it would be knowing him for the first time or coming back to him. I do want to invite you this, this morning. He's here. He knows. He's been waiting. And I think you know in your heart. You can come back to him through repentance, through prayer. You don't have to get your act together first and get all cleaned up. But seek him.